Hi, I'm Kim Vu. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans. Vietnola is our window into our Vietnamese community in New Orleans and a bridge to Vietnam. We're a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam in New Orleans. Vietnola là một cánh cửa để nhìn vào cộng đồng New Orleans và một cảnh nối với quê hương. Vietnola là một số trình diễn trong chương trình pháp hành podcast itsneworleans.com. Today on the show, we'll have a conversation with Harriet Finney. Harriet Finney is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and the Asian Studies programs at Seattle University. Her ties to Vietnam began in the late 80s when she was working for a funding organization focusing on women's health. Since then, she obtained her Master's in Public Health and PhD and has published extensively on a number of women's issues, parenthood, parenthood by people living with HIV and single mothers in Vietnam. Currently, she's in New Orleans giving a series of lectures on her research and conferring with colleagues at Tulane University School of Public Health. She's taken time out of her packed New Orleans schedule to chat with us today. Harriet, thank you so much for coming and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written on a number of incredibly fascinating topics involving parenthood in contemporary Vietnam. I'd like to start off with one topic in particular regarding the choice of single women in Vietnam to become mothers. I actually first read an article about this maybe a year ago in the New York Times, and uh, it was, I thought it was a very interesting demonstration of both um, contemporary patriarchy and the need for modernization and basically population growth is what it looked like to me. Uh, in an incredibly patriarchal and traditional culture like the Vietnamese one, how is it that Vietnam passed a law in 86 which explicitly condoned the right of a woman, regardless of her marital status, to bear a child with the government's support. How does that happen? Um, that's, that's a great question. That's sort of a key question. And I think uh, in order to really understand that question, we have to go back and look at when women first started to ask for a child. So in Vietnamese, they talked about it as Sing Con or Kiem Con and to find a child or ask for a child. And so what we learn is that women first started this practice uh, of intentional single motherhood in the mid to late 1980s. And this was a time or during after the Indochina Wars in the North, and I'm talking about Northern Vietnam here, here where women came back home or they were at home and they had dedicated their youth to fighting in the war, and there were no men to marry. So most of the men uh, who were around were older men, and they were men who, because they were so much older, uh, were not necessarily desirable. Mm -hmm. So for instance, some one woman that I interviewed uh, was asked to be a second wife, and she did not want to be a second wife, which was <laughs> actually illegal at that time, and she also didn't love him. So there are a couple factors that are very important for the reasons why women chose um, to have a child out of wedlock. One, there were a few men that they wanted to marry. Two, they didn't, they were, it, they didn't love the men. And so if there was a man, at that time, uh, the 1959 law on marriage in the family uh, eradicated 
polygamous marriage, which had been eradicated before, but also stipulated that parents could not force their children to marry. Mm -hmm. And marriage must be based on consensual love between the husband and the wife. So women use this idea of love to reject marrying just anyone. Mm -hmm. And so it was, um, it was socially acceptable. Now, was there a third component in there of, uh, from personal experience, I may be referring, uh, but after a certain age, women were considered not marriageable. Yes. Maybe, what, 26 or 7 or something like Definitely. that. Definitely. Right? And that's a, that's a, a very important um, factor as well. And so women found themselves too old to be married. So then we can ask, well, what does too old mean? And <laughs> in, in the rural, in Vietnam, and so in rural areas... <laughs> it was, uh, you know, maybe 24, mm -hmm. whereas in the cities it might have been a bit older. But, uh, and it was interesting because women would say, I say, well, whoa, what happens if you fell in love with someone who was, uh, who was younger than you? And in fact, one woman that I talked to had a boyfriend who was four years younger than she was. And she would not marry him because there is this understanding that women age faster than men because they're bearing children. And because they're because of that, uh, when they get when they get much older, their husbands will no longer be interested in them because they look old and not so great. Right. And so you would never want to marry a man who was younger than you because then that would be exacerbated. So it's better to marry a man who's older than you because you're looking young and sweet and you're always attractive. And so that was another factor, uh, reason, yeah. Um, your, let's take us back to your first exposure to Vietnam in the 80s. Your job, what were you doing there and why did you pick Vietnam? Um, okay, so first, I did not go to Vietnam until 1993, okay. but in the late 1980s, when I was working in international public health, we had just started to uh, work on a project with the Vietnamese Ministry of Health, and at that time, Vietnam was opening up to Western scholars, to Western <clears throat> um, uh, health researchers, and we... I was just about to launch, we were just, I was just about to go to Vietnam when the project got called off because somebody got sick. So I sort of had this longing to go and then it was canceled. And, but then right shortly thereafter, I went and started a PhD program in anthropology uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I decided to work in Vietnam because frankly, there had been no Americans mm -hmm. there for such a long time. And so it was wide open. Uh, and I, I was intrigued and sort of delighted by the idea of going someplace where their Americans hadn't been. Um, so that was, and then the more I studied, the more interested I became. And it sounds like this topic actually was something that was presented to you pretty early in that research. Um, yes, when I went in 1993, I'd initially intended to study uh, something related with women's reproductive health and every time I went and talked to people like my language um, teacher instructor or other people on the street who I talked to and they'd say well what are you going to research and I said well I'm interested in women's reproductive health and they would say well that's very interesting but have you heard about these women who have asked for a child <laughs> and I'd say no I haven't heard about them and then I would sort of go on and I meet another person and I'd say what are you going to do your research on and I'd say I'm going to do women's reproductive health and they'd say oh that's very interesting but have you heard about these women who've asked for a child <laughs> so you know from an anthropological perspective 
uh, our research is an iterative process. And so when we go and we talk to people and then we hang out, um, our questions are always changing. So I began to realize that the Vietnamese were really not interested in family planning at all. What they were interested in was a relatively new and very daring demonstration of women's reproductive agency. And so I decided to change my topic. I thought your anecdotal, I thought it, the, the stories of women's reactions in your research, um, the wives of the men who were selected to father these children was intriguing uh, do you want to do you want to summarize the different the different reactions that you documented um yeah so um i think what you're referring to is so you know one main question is at that time how are women getting pregnant and there were no uh, there are no sperm banks at that time and so women were getting pregnant with men and most all of the men were married so they're getting pregnant with married men so the question that ar ar arose was uh, for for these the wives of these men was this is a, a bit of a problem and so <laughs> <laughs> so you know and certainly it was challenging this new socialist idea of a monogamous marriage mm -hmm. and that's based on love and romance so what the women's union officials and social scientists and journalists did was draw on very essentialist notions of Vietnamese women, this notion that a woman's identity is really uh, rooted in her body. And one is that we, all Vietnamese women are inherently maternal. So we, if we recognize that, then we know that every woman has a right to a child, every woman deserves a child because it's something that she needs to do. And so that as a wife, you should sacrifice a little bit of your happiness for the happiness of another woman who has dedicated her youth to the nation. So it then not only uh, it drew, drew on this notion of this inherent um, a maternal desire, but also this idea that uh, women, Vietnamese women themselves are part, um, they recognize a community of sentiment am among each other in that you know, certainly there was a community of sentiment during the war um, that people um, shared, even though they weren't biologically related. So now women are supposed to recognize other women's desires and sacrifice for somebody else. But another aspect, and maybe the one that you're referring to, are these ideas of sexuality. Is that what uh, you're I thought thinking? both, you know, the whole spectrum was really interesting. Uh -huh. This yeah. idea of it's a national duty to right. allow your husband to yes. <laughs> father a child with other women. Yes, yes. And um, and so that, that also draws on these uh, essentialist notions of uh, gendered sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so from the woman's perspective, women's sexuality was discussed in terms of reproduction. Women have... Uh, sexual intercourse in order to reproduce. Mm -hmm. They're not doing it for really any, any other reason. Um, whereas men, we know, um, like <laughs> sex, right? And so actually one of the phrases that was referred to me is that, oh, well, you don't need to worry about your husband because men are like sticks in the sand. They go around poking holes and forget where they've been. So if your husband gets another woman pregnant, he's not going to even remember, right? And also, you know, uh, women were really, and a very another important component of this, this is the women were not interested in breaking up um, families. Mm -hmm. They only wanted a child. In fact, they did not want 
the man to have any responsibility for their child. And one woman that I had interviewed in Hanoi had actually drawn up a formal contract with the boyfriend who got her pregnant. He actually wasn't married, making him relinquish all rights to the child. Mm -hmm. And so all of the women I talked to would not provide any information on who the man was at all. They wouldn't even talk about it. And they said, because it's not important, I don't see him anymore, I don't want to see him anymore, and that's it. And so what I began to realize is I heard the story over and over again, and I began to realize that, oh, women are telling me the exactly the same thing. Are they telling me the same thing because there's a women's union official sitting right next right, to me? Right. Probably, yes. And so in which case, they are providing a socially acceptable narrative that resonates with Vietnamese understandings of love and marriage and reproduction uh-huh. that has um, will be socially accepted. And so I think that's why they were saying that. Whereas, and I do know now, because some of the women who I interviewed in 95 and 96, I saw in 2004, and I just saw them this last summer. And I know now from, you know, with things sort of loosening up and they're much older and their children are getting married that, in fact, they did have some connection with a man. Mm -hmm. Um, He might have provided some school fees, but not very much. And it depended on the situation. And it's not, you know, you made it very clear what the kind of cultural norm that the national government was promoting um, as far as it being a national duty. But in your anecdotal experience with women, with wives of um, these men who are bearing children or, you know, fathering children, what was that in line with the story or the presentation you were given? I did not interview any of these women because I don't know who they are, Uh because I don't know who the men are. are. So, I mean, that's like a glaring absence in the research, but it's also a very notable absence. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the silence and the absence itself speaks quite a bit. But, however, having said that, you know, just in November, I was reading a letter to the editor of a newspaper online um, in Vietnam, and this woman was writing saying, my husband just came home the other day and he told me that um, a woman in his office is wondering if he'll help her get pregnant. And I'm really not sure what I think about this. <laughs> and um, I don't have a response to that. I don't know what the response is yet. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'll have to look at the thread of um, discussion as it plays out. Another aspect of your research in a separate article uh, also discusses parenthood. But in this case, the stigmatization of uh, against parenthood for people living with HIV. Hmm. Despite the science that people with HIV can live decades, decades, multiple decades after contracting it, and despite the science that you a mother can prevent transmission to her child, um, one that she's giving birth to after contracting HIV, can be reduced from 30% to 2%. It sounds like doctors are still strongly discouraging and in Vietnam it's a public health care system so it sounds like doctors are still in large part discouraging parenthood actively discouraging parenthood can you talk a little bit about that research and and what you're finding with people of science who 
are kind of giving advice that is not entirely reflective of the science. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, in fact, this research project, I was working with two uh, Vietnamese women, and they were doing the research, and I was the senior advisor on the project. Mm -hmm. And so the way in which we began to conceptualize this disjuncture between the way in which um, couples who, one of whom or both are HIV positive, and the doctors was in terms of um, uh, risk and this larger idea of population quality that the Vietnamese government is um, advocating now. And so there's a larger discourse for everybody in Vietnam about the importance of you know, uh, feeding your child well, educating them well, so they will be strong and healthy and be productive members of society. So the concern is among doctors Despite, um, uh, despite the scientific evidence that people who are HIV positive will not be able to raise quality children. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is uh, because they feel that these um, couples are inadequate themselves to start with. So there's still this lingering st stigma and discrimination of people who are HIV positive, thinking that perhaps there's something bad in their character. And that so even if they were able to have a child who was not um, HIV positive, they themselves are not, um, would not have the capability of uh, raising a child in a manner that the state wants. And uh, part of this has to do with class discrimination of lower class with it thinking that oh they really don't understand um they really don't understand um what it means here for an hiv positive couple to have a kid and so part of that is well other people will treat the kid badly and so the kid will already be mar marginalized from the beginning and their parents are already marginalized if people know if they know they're hiv positive so it's a bad start to begin with and um so that's one component of it. It's it seems like it's much, it's a much larger discussion about cultural values than it is the science. Yes, maybe. Yes, and the other way that we conceptualize it in is in terms of risk. So for HIV positive couples, it is more risky to not have a child mm -hmm. than it is um, to have a child because. It is so important to have children in Vietnam. It brings men and women social status. And so people begin, if you don't have a child, they begin question, well, how come you're not getting pregnant? Or why aren't you getting pregnant? Or why don't you have that second child? Well, they don't want to say, well, actually, I'm HIV positive. And then sort of, you know, they, they're exposed if they're hiding it. Um, whereas for the doctors, the risk is actually uh, the viral risk, the potential viral risk, or the risk of these it, sort of uh, um, lower uneducated people having children. Mm -hmm. So a little bit about yourself. You, it's, you've spent years at this point doing research in Vietnam, cumulatively. Mm -hmm. And you speak Vietnamese. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like we will never be able to hear it on this show unless I go to Vietnam with you. Is that, is that true? That's true. <laughs> we'll have a beer together, and then I'll start talking. So let me know. <laughs> do you do a lot of your research with other researchers, obviously, who are native speakers, but do you yourself conduct, you know, making these contacts in Vietnamese? Um, 
So it shifted over the last sort of 20 years. Mm -hmm. So initially, when I was doing the research on single women, I did all those interviews in Vietnamese myself. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, at that time, there was a uh, my friend who was a, a women's union official. You know, she might be lingering in the background and sort of shout out a clarification of what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in 2004, when I did research, we actually decided that it would be better for Vietnamese women researchers to do the research because if I was going to go, there was going to be someone from the People's Committee or the Women's Union following me. And since that was a study of men's extramarital relations, people were not going to be talking. So I thought it would be better if they went. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, in the, um, you know, and then I went back this summer. Some interviews I do by myself. But uh, this last year, I brought a good friend of mine who's from Hanoi along with me on the interviews. So and your shyness is completely unjustified, is what I'm no, learning. You're doing not at very all. intense, <laughs> uh, intricate sub- interviewing on these subjects well, in this language. Well, in 2013, I brought my friend Tuyen with me because since I spend so much time in the United States and I am not in Vietnam, it really takes me a long time to get going talking. And so uh, I would talk and then she would talk more in depth so i'm not being completely shy how are, how are you rating the vietnamese food here what, what's your in what, the united states yeah, in, here in new orleans i'm hoping i haven't Mai had any has vietnamese been, food yet my what kind of what kind of guide have you been <laughs> i love vietnamese food in fact in fact uh i get um cravings for vietnamese food. oh really yeah that's you know, great after the, after the pop, we have to oh great <laughs> I that'll get, be your payment that, that's an awesome payment that's all i really need yeah do you what's what's in the future for you um i'm not really sure i need to wrap up this i need to write and wrap up this book on single women and when i was last in vietnam i was uh working and meeting with some women at the uh maternity hospital and we're thinking about possibly doing a study on single women's reproductive health as one possibility. Uh, I'm also very much interested in um, caring for the elderly. Mm-hmm. And because one of the things that, you know, older women have said is that I need a child to take care of me in my old age. And that's sort of a pat answer that everyone provides. And it wasn't really until my father got sick in December that I began to really understand what it meant to take care of an older person. And uh, I began to suddenly realize that, wow, you know, this is a, this is, it's, it's quite something to care for people in their old age. And people, I think there's been very little study of it in Vietnam and what's happening now. I mean, I have a couple friends who are researching it from a more of a demographic or sociological perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but no anthropological research that I'm aware of at this time. Any interest in studying that topic with the uh, diasporic community here in oh, the United States? Yeah, I think it would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I've always wanted to um, study um, the diaspora community in the United States. I've always been so focused elsewhere. But I'm very aware of, um, you know, the dynamics back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, my recent re- – I mean – in some ways, my, having spanned 20 years of doing research in Vietnam, you know, initially when I went to Hanoi in 1993, you know, the only way to communicate with people at home was to call them, go to the post office and call them on the phone. And it cost like $8 for a minute or something crazy. So you had no connection. And then, you know, then now when I went back to do the follow-up research, 
in 2013, my first sort of interview was in Seattle with a, a friend's couple who'd come over from Hanoi. Hmm. And uh, they were the ones who told me about, um, uh, you know, a Vietnamese singer who had just decided to get pregnant or had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and about a TV talk show. So obviously this connection back and forth is, um, I mean, it's really interesting and it's what's going on. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been thank great talking to you. Thank you for having me. That's Vietnola for today. Thank you so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. And a special thanks to today's guest, Harriet Finney. Our show is produced by Kim Vu, Tom Lasher, and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Kehoe. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live sounding products, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Air Studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook, we're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our po- podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnola shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the lovely city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the information you need on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Kim Vu. Bye-bye. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.